Well, Luke is away, as you know. I'm taking up the oars to continue what Bill and Ted would describe as his most excellent series on worship. If you don't know who Bill and Ted are, then you need a better movie education. But, uh, uh, and it, is, it has been excellent. I think he's been hitting it out of the park every single week, and I'm thrilled to be able to be a part of it following up uh, the next installment of Encounters of Worship, which we've been exploring. Uh, some of the characters we read about in the Gospels who come face to face with God in a body, with the Lord Jesus Christ. If, uh, before we begin, if you'd like a Bible, hold up a hand. If you need a pencil or a pen, hold up a couple of fingers, and the uh, stewards will get those to you. And if you have a Bible, would like to follow along, turn to Luke chapter 7, because that's what we're going to be um, looking into uh, today. While you're turning there, I'm going to pray. This is a prayer written a hundred years ago, but it's as applicable now as it was then. O infinite light of truth, dawn upon our darkened minds, lead us past all shams and shadows to thyself. Make us discontented with anything less than thee, lest we be found following broken lights or molding some image of thee from base desire. O infinite love of life, life of love, the source, the way, the goal of all true life, may we feel the tides of thy being sweeping around our hearts, catch sight of that immortal sea which brought us hither, and open the floodgates of our lives to the ocean of thy love. Forgive us for, our shrink, for shrinking from the light. Forgive us for all fear of love. Leave us not alone in our darkness and our dread but lift up our hearts and make us strong. In Jesus' name, amen. By far, the most embarrassing moment of my life, so far, was when my wife entered me in the sexy legs competition <laughs> on the cruise ship we were on for her parents' 50th wedding anniversary. They paid for our cruise. and. Uh, Going on a cruise was on a, my bucket list. Before I knew what, that it was called a bucket list, I had a list of things. I want to do these things before I die, and uh, that was one of them. And for anybody who's ever, never been on one and think, oh, that sounds great, it was really boring, I've got to tell you. I mean, all you do is eat all day. You can eat 24-7, fabulous food. Um, but unless you have the money to go on all the excursions where you get off the boat, you're just stuck on the boat, and there is nothing to do. So we ate. And uh, we're talking to one of the stewards there, he said, four pounds a day is about average for what people put on on a cruise ship. So, be warned. So, there was some entertainment in the evenings, uh, but there's uh, here and there, we, boys and I uh, played a lot of cards is what we did. But then one day we went up on top of the, on deck because they had some, you know, event going on there. And my uh, youngest son entered and won the belly flop competition in the uh, tiny little saltwater pool that they had up on the deck. Uh, I think he was red the rest of the week. Um, and then my wife tells me that she's entered me in the sexy legs competition. <clears throat> because she said she'd, she'd only ever married me for my legs. Well, and I'm not going to be showing them off this morning. Well, you know, I really had little time to respond. Before I know it, the MC is calling us all forward. So like a lamb to the slaughter, I, uh, I shuffle up to the front on this deck area, you know, with this, this railings, people hanging over, looking, and, 
with about eight or nine other guys, and we line up. And then, to my absolute horror, the MC invites some of the hot, bikini-clad girls that are sunbathing on the deck to come up forward and sit on chairs in front of us. All right. And then he proceeds to tell us that, uh, all right, to show off your legs, guys, I want you to do a sexy dance in front of the girls. I was absolutely mortified. <laughs> Not only can't I dance, but hell would have to freeze over before I was ever going to start lap dancing a bikini-clad girl that I didn't know in front of my wife and my kids and a sea of people that I didn't know. It just was never going to happen. I, so I just stood there, dumbly. I don't know what color I went, but you probably could have fried an egg on my face. <laughs> wow. Reminds me of the, uh, the minister's kid who, upon seeing the sour-faced old lady who come to see the vicar at the vicarage, looked at her while she was waiting for his dad, and he said, looks like the world just dropped out your bottom. <laughs> and because uh, he he's a kid and he gets things around right. Well, that's pretty much how I felt, you know. And to this day, my three boys very thoughtfully like to remind me, and there's a picture floating around that one of them has that I've never been able to get my hands on of the Sexy Legs competition. Most embarrassing moment ever beyond far for me. Well, and I tell you that story uh, because today's story is an embarrassing moment. All right, the whole thing is a huge embarrassment for the, uh, one of the main characters. And that main character is a man named Simon. And Simon is a Pharisee, and he invites Jesus over for dinner. And during that dinner, a woman from the red light district of town shows up at his dinner party. And he is absolutely mortified, probably as much as I was, that there's this woman of ill repute in his living room. We find the story in Luke 7, beginning at verse 36. Here's how it starts. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. A woman of the city, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Pharisee, the word Pharisee, is an Aramaic word. It means separate, because the Pharisees wanted to separate themselves from uh, pretty much everybody, really. They separated themselves from the priests and the scribes and the clerics who interpreted the law different and the Sadducees differently from them, so they kept themselves separate. They separated themselves from uh, any riffraff and commoners and Gentiles, certain political groups, and uh, pretty much everybody. And they would have been ruthless in their desire to separate themselves from people of ill repute, like this woman who's shown up in Simon's living room. For them, following God was all about the outward appearance. So it doesn't look good if you have a prostitute in your dinner, where you're eating dinner, showing up. You're like, that just does not look good. So he would have been mortified, as I said. Because outward appearance, adherence to the law, was everything. And they were nitpickers when it came, when it came to the law. Adding all kinds of extra layers of tradition to the Mosaic law. So hundreds of different things. And they prided themselves in keeping all these things. So their outward appearance was good. Pharisees uh, are mentioned 28 times in the Gospel of Luke. And every one of them reveals them to be hostile to the Lord Jesus Christ. So they were not his favorite. Uh, Jesus was not you know, one of their favorite people. Uh, and... 
they weren't his favorite people either, truth be told. The harshest criticisms Jesus ever leveled at anyone was leveled at the Pharisees. He described them as whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. Now there's a picture for you. A whitewashed tomb, perfectly white, pure on the outside, corrupt, and death within. That's what the Pharisees were like. And that was only one of the things that he said about them. So words all round. They may look great, but they were rotten. Anyway, this nameless woman finds out where Jesus is having dinner, and she goes to find him. Now, it's important to remember that they are not sitting around a table like we do for a dinner party. They were eating Roman star, which meant they were reclining on couches around a low central table. And once she gets there, she gets to Jesus' feet, and she just stops. I don't know whether she wanted to say something, but she is tongue-tied by emotion. And she just stands there, and she starts to cry, just weeps. And then she bows her head, and she notices that her tears are running little channels through the dust on Jesus' feet. Hot tears running down, dripping off her nose and her chin. And so she does the unexpected. She kneels down, and having nothing else to hand, she takes her hair, and she starts to wipe the tears off Jesus' feet with her hair, even as she's crying on them at the same time. And then she very gently just leans forward and she kisses them, one and then the other. And then she takes this little jar of ointment that she's brought with her and starts pouring it on his feet and weeping and kissing them. And, and as soon as she pours this ointment, it would have just filled the room uh, because that's what perfume does, isn't it? Uh, think about it, ladies, how much perfume do you put on when you go out for an evening? You put a little dab on your wrist. I never quite figured that out. It's not that we all go around, can I smell your wrist? <laughs> but, you know, a bit behind the ears, maybe a bit on the neck. But, and, you know, and a couple of dabs will do you for the whole evening, right? Imagine being in an elevator where somebody had just doused themselves with an entire bottle of Chanel Number no. 5, and you're like, you know? It would be, it would be overwhelming. And so this whole room is suddenly permeated with the smell of this, this perfume, this ointment. And it probably lingered there for weeks. Every guest there would have taken it home with them. Jesus would have taken it with him for who knows how long. It was on his feet. But this event would be remembered by everyone. For the, you know, just the perfume alone would remind them of it. It's an impossibly enormous amount of perfume. It's beyond lavish. It's unreasonable because it's not a rational act. Simon is just squirming that there's this woman in his house who is, you know, shouldn't be there. He is so embarrassed. But his embarrassment, as embarrassment often does, turned to anger very quickly. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he'd have known who and what sort of woman this, this is, who's touching him for she is a sinner. You don't have to be the son of God or even to be in the room to interpret his body language. For as far as he's concerned, he'd have cut off his own feet before he allowed some woman like this anywhere near to touch him. It was never going to happen because that would contaminate him and he needed to have the nice, pure, outward tomb that he was constructing. Well, Jesus, who loves whitewashed tombs as much as he does harlots, he knows what he's thinking. He turns to him and says, Simon, 
I've got something to say to you. And Simon's like, what's that, rabbi? You could almost hear the sneer in his voice. Because you see, he's already made his mind up. You know, if this, if this guy were a prophet, he'd know who this is, you know? And he's a teacher, he's a rabbi. Yeah, right. So what is it you want to say, rabbi? Well, Jesus ignores that, and he says a certain man, so he tells him a story. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. A denarii was a day's wages for a laborer. So year and a half's pay, few to a few, and a few months' pay. When they couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Is the question he places to Simon. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. And then turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, I love this, he's been talking to Simon, and now he's going to turn towards the woman while he's talking to Simon. And he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, what Simon failed to do when Jesus arrived is a strong indication of his attitude, of how he viewed Jesus, because he provides no kiss of greeting, no dab of oil, nice sweet-smelling perfume, and no foot washing. Uh, and so he ignores all the social customers of his day of a host inviting somebody into their house. Just doesn't do it. Imagine, for instance, if I gave you a dinner invitation, and I said, I'm having some friends over, why don't you, why don't you come? Or no, actually, it wouldn't be that personal. You get an invitation in the mail. There's dinner at the Jeffrey's house this time. And so you come over. And as you pull up in the car, you notice that there's some other people. That, I've got the door open, and some people going in. And, uh, and I'm giving them a hug, and I'm shaking hands, and, and I'm taking their coats, and I'm walking in. And so you get out of the car, and you come up, knock on the door, ring the bell, and I open it, and I say, hi, turn away, walk away, and so just continue conversing with who was in here. So you step in the door, and you're like, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? And you take off your coat, and then you're just standing there because nobody's taking it from you, and you don't know what to do with it. And, uh, and nobody gave you a hug. Nobody shook your hand. You know, you got an invitation. But how welcome do you think you'd feel? Jesus was invited to eat at this Pharisee's house, and he did none of the things that he would have done for his other guests, because there are other people here. And he doesn't extend uh, that courtesy to him. So though he was invited, he was not really welcome, just as you would feel the same if somebody did that to you. You're not like other guests, Jesus. I'm not going to pretend that you are. Which begs the question, of course, well, if Simon was going to be so rude as a host, why have him over in the first place? Why indeed? The only answer that anyone seems to have for that is that Simon must have been some kind of celebrity hunter. He had Jesus over purely and simply because it would give him bragging rights. So you could say, hey, you know that traveling rabbi that's going around making all the fuss that's being made? Had him for dinner? Mm-hmm, yep, last week. You know, of course, I let him know just where, you know, where his, that he wasn't one of us, kept him in his place, 
wasn't going to extend all the common courtesies. No, but yeah, I did, did have him over. He's been in my house. Still smells there, you can tell, you can tell. <laughs> there is no really no other logical explanation for why he would be that rude to somebody that he had invited over. And by what happens next, we know that he certainly didn't have Jesus over uh, because he was interested in who he was and what he was teaching. If he had ever been on the fence about, is this guy really, you know, I've heard lots. If he had ever been on the fence about who Jesus was, he concludes pretty quick, yeah, he's not a prophet. He's a nobody. He's just another charlatan, another, you know, Messiah. Only this one's from Galilee. And uh, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, I mean, good grief, he doesn't even know a harlot when he sees one. If this man were a prophet, now, we say the word if, and it, it leaves us undecided, doesn't it? If I say, I'm going shopping, you know, if I go shopping later, do you want to come? Well, then you don't know if I'm going to go or not, because it's completely open. That's how we use the word if in English. Well, in Greek, it can mean that, but the construction of the, of the, of the Greek tells you whether it's just kind of open-ended or whether it's expecting a, ne a negative or a positive response. Uh, it'll be like saying, if I go shopping later, and I probably won't, you know, do you want to come? And he, this passage is expecting, Simon, in his th he's expressing a negative response. So you could construct this and say, if this man were a prophet, and he's not, but if he were, he'd have known what sort of woman this was. He's touching him. Ugh. Ironically, contrary to what Simon is thinking, because it says he said to himself, Jesus knows exactly what kind of woman this is, but more than that, he also knows exactly what kind of man Simon is as well. So Jesus uses this moment and his judgmental and rude behavior to teach him something. I don't know if you've got kids, if you've had kids, you look for teachable moments, do you? You, you, you catch them doing something that they shouldn't be doing and you, and you turn it into a little lesson. And they can't stand you when you do that. But that's, that's what we do. We try to teach them little lessons as we go along. And so Jesus uses this uh, to teach a spiritual lesson to Simon. You know, Simon, you know, you chose not to extend to me the common courtesies normally offered to any guest. A kiss, a foot wash, a dab of sweet-smelling oil. But this woman, this woman has given me all three. Uh, in James Cameron's blockbuster movie, Avatar, the Navi the indigenous people of the fictitious planet Pandora, have a phrase that they say to one another throughout the whole movie. They say, I see you. I see you. And they don't mean I see you like you would for your grandson who's hiding behind the curtains. I see you. you know, that's not how it's being used. I see you means I understand you. I comprehend. I see who you really are. I see your soul. I see your true essence. I recognize you, I honor you, I respect you, I connect with you, I love you, I see you. Jesus says, do you see this woman, Simon? Do you, do you really see her? I don't think you do. I don't think you see her at all. In fact, I know you don't, and what you do see is wrong. Because you're only seeing what she has been not what she is. You're only seeing what she was because now she is the forgiven, loving, precious daughter of the living God. And you miss that completely because you're walling yourself off behind whitewash and don't want anything to do with these kind of people. You don't 
see her. We don't have a record um, in the text, but prior to this scene where the woman shows up at the dinner party, she has had an encounter with Jesus. Um, Guarantee she's had an encounter. Because she's not seeing Jesus for the first time. You don't have an emotional response to just seeing somebody at a dinner party. Something happened somewhere along the line, and I would suggest because of the high emotion involved, it was incredibly recent. This woman had an encounter with Jesus. Her coming to him is a response to whatever that encounter was. Maybe she'd been healed. Maybe she had a disease as a result of her profession, and, and she was healed, and so she came to see him. Maybe, maybe she was the woman in, in John who was caught in the act of adultery, and they picked up stones to stone her. Jesus said, you know, he was without sin, cast the first stone. And she's carrying on the ground, and one by one, they drop the stones and walk away. Maybe it's her. I have no idea. This, this is pure speculation, but something happened between Jesus and her. There was an encounter. How do I know? Because just the sight of Jesus alone made her weep. Just getting to his feet and seeing him, as I said, maybe she wanted to say something, but her tongue was tied and she couldn't. She just cries right there. That's all she can do in response. It's a loving response to what this person has done for me. Most, if not all of you, will know that my wife died on January 17th this year. And uh, as an aside, I'd like to thank you as a community, those of you who, have, uh, who knew that and have supported me with love, prayers, and cards, and so forth. I've been to the grave twice since she's died, and both times doing nothing more than just walking up and standing there, I have sobbed. I've just wept. Because I didn't I have any words to say. It was just, and I'm weeping because there was a love connection there. There's a history. This woman did not come in from nowhere and just start sobbing, all right? Something happened. And yes, there are tears of grief, but there are grief that exists because there was love there. I'm grateful for the 34 years we had, and I don't have words to say. This woman comes into the room, and doing nothing other than stand there, tears of love begin to flow. They express what she could not put into words. There were two debtors, one who owed ten times more than the other. The debt of both was canceled. Which one do you think loved him more? It's an obvious question, isn't it? And then Jesus speaks, because in her tears she can't. And he says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And those at table with him, the other guests, so there we go. That's why Simon had other guests. Those at the table with him said, began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sin? He completely ignored them. And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Your faith has saved you. Let's be very clear. This woman is not forgiven because she washes Jesus' feet, wipes them with her hair, kisses them, and anoints them with oil. That is not why she's forgiven. She is not forgiven because she loved much. No, that's to put the cart before the horse. That's not how it works. She has already 
being forgiven. Her love doesn't earn her forgiveness. It's proof that she's received it back to that encounter that she had. And as if to reinforce that, Jesus says to her, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. It's always been by faith. It's never by works or actions. It's never by, look at the devout action that she did. Her sins are forgiven. No, no, no. It was her faith in Jesus that saved her. And this is an expression of response to that kind of saving love that he lavished on her. That's where she is. Now, this series is about worship. And even though the word worship is not used in this passage, this is undeniably an encounter of worship. Pastor Luke has defined worship as thinking great big thoughts about God. And it, and it is. It's thinking huge thoughts because God needs to be bigger than we can possibly imagine rather than just an enlarged version of us because that doesn't work. Thinking great big thoughts about God. But I want to whittle that definition down one more level to just the very central core of what worship is. And worship is nothing more and nothing less than simply loving God. Loving God. Which of them will love him more? Worship is loving God. Which is no shock because Jesus himself said that the greatest and most important commandment was what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love the Lord your God. That's the core of worship. It's our response that he's looking for of worship is to love him can't pull those two apart. Because if you love somebody, you can't help but think great big thoughts about them. And in this nameless woman's unselfconscious, extravagant act of love, we see the essence of worship, which is why I am assuming Luke chose this passage. All right, so what do we learn from this? That was then, this is now, great story, powerful, emotional story. How, do, how does this apply to our lives? Well, in the story that Jesus tells Simon, both individuals, both of them, had their slates wiped clean, both of them. And from the question that Jesus asks, which of them will love him more, and the answer that he endorses, you got it right, the one who was forgiven the most, from that we learn there is a correlation between awareness of the size of the debt canceled and the response in love and gratitude. Large debt, much love. Small debt, little love. All right? That's, there's a correlation there. He was forgiven little, loves little. So awareness of the size of the debt seems to be a critical factor. For you and me then, if worship is loving God, the depth of my love, the, the, the depth of my worship is going to be directly related to the quantity of sin that I think he's forgiven in my life. Now, he's forgiven all of it. That's Jesus deals with all of it. But my understanding of just how much that was may be very different from yours or from his. My dear wife loved God with a passion. She really did. Passion I always envied. I mean, she really loved God with her whole heart. I can imagine seeing her doing the kind of thing, if she was around in Jesus' day, doing the kind of thing that this woman does and, uh, and, and breaking into a party and, and, and weeping at his feet. Why? Because she had a keen awareness of where she'd come from. 
and what she was when God got a hold of her life, and what it meant to her to be forgiven and adopted as a daughter of the king. That was on our funeral flights. She designed it. She said, I want it to say, gone to see the king, because that was who she was going to meet, because she loved God with all that was in her. Because for the first 18 years of her life, her days were filled with pain and shame. She was used, she was abused in every way you can think of, and then God reached in and rescued her from a misery that should have left her with the, the, the personality of a beaten dog. But God reached in and rescued her from that and forgave her and cleansed her and restored her and renewed her. And he paid it all for her. And she never recovered from the debt that was forgiven and her response in love. Some of you here can relate to that. Some of you here could probably tell a very similar story to my wife's. You come here every week and you are moved to tears by what you hear and the songs you sing because it just means so much. God did it for you. He rescued you. He forgave your life. You, he forgave you. And, and you can't believe it. And every week you get that reminder. But not all of you relate that way. My story is the polar opposite of my wife's. I had a wonderful childhood. My parents were Christians. I had a happy, very happy, carefree existence in a solid, loving family. And I was a good kid, all right? I mean, it's not that I never did anything wrong, uh, because you're kids, you do. Uh, my mother tells me she doesn't remember doing anything but saying no and smacking me for the first eight years of my life. <laughs> so, so. Fortunately, I don't remember that, but that's what she says. Uh, when we moved from the city to the country, the very next day, there was a ring, door, ring, ring at the doorbell, and my, my mom opened it, and there was a police officer stood there, and I'm six, and I'm in tow here, and I've been chasing cows up and down a field, apparently, and the farmer had called the police, and so there I am. So I was, but for the most part, I was a good kid. I never rebelled as a teenager. I'm one of three boys. I'm in the middle, best place to be, as far as I'm concerned, but... My older brother, he rebelled for both of us because he, he really put my parents through hell for a good number of years. But I was just a good kid, all right? That's how I thought about myself. God got a hold of my life the exact same age as my wife was when I was 18. And my life changed. It really did. But it was nothing like as dramatic a change as it was for Carol because I was already living by mostly Christian standards from the home that I'd grown up in. And uh, I couldn't relate at all to the testimonies that I'd hear in church or read in books because, you know, you start, because every testimony seemed to be somebody getting up and saying, yes, I was living a depraved life. I was into to, to set to, to sex and drugs and rock and roll. And, and then when I turned eight, God rescued my life. And you're like, when you turned eight for crying out, what? And, and I couldn't, couldn't relate to that at all. So it was just, you know, and it bothered me. My testimony just seemed so lame in comparison to anything I was ever hearing or reading about. Yeah, um, I grew up in church and became a Christian about 18, and yeah, there you go, you know? Yeah. N not only that, not, but 
I then would read things in scripture that I really struggled to identify with. Because like in Jeremiah 17, 9, it says, the heart is desperately wicked and evil above all things. First time I read that, you know, I'm a new believer, and I'm like, well, I don't really feel like it's desperately wicked or evil above all, thi- all things, really? I don't know what that, how, what does that mean? I mean, I feel like I'm pretty good, really. How is that true for me? What is that, how, how am I supposed to, if, that, if this is God's word and it's true, I just don't get that. I kid you not. I thought there was something wrong because I hadn't been to all these things. I hadn't joined a gang or, or uh, been a thug or a communist or anything else, you know, I was like, I was just this you know, good kid growing up in rural England. I didn't feel like much of a sinner. Consequently, guess what? I didn't really have a great love and appreciation for what Christ had done in my life. Because I did. The slate got wiped clean, but I just thought there wasn't much on it. That's just the way, you know, I was, you know, and he who is forgiven little loves little. Fortunately, our God is very patient with us, and we all come to him at different points and in different places with different personalities and different backgrounds and he embraces all of us from wherever we come from. And as I've gotten older, my understanding of what God has done, what he's forgiven of my heart has grown. I've grown, I have a, a grown an appreciation for the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And I may point fingers and think, well, how could they do this, how could they do that? But you know, but there but by the grace of God, We are all capable of any human atrocity you can imagine. We could all do those things. I could not have said that when I was 18 when I came to Christ. I'd have thought, no, 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 there's no way. But I've grown. And what we can do within, you know, that's why Jesus made sin, not just this outward appearance, this whitewashed wall. He said, no, no, if you've looked with lust, you just committed adultery. You know, if you've hated that person, you just murdered them. The sin is the same. The outward action and the consequences may be different, but the sin is the same. It's all in there. And that, my understanding of that has grown as the years have gone by. It's deepened. Consequently, my gratitude to God for the sacrifice that Jesus had to, to make, the price he paid. We're coming up to Easter, Good Friday. You know, recognizing it's grown where I can say, you know what? It was my sin that drove those nails in. And we, you know, we, we, I remember in the youth group, this was bandied around, oh, Jesus died just for me. If there don't, I'd been the only person on the planet, he'd have done it for me. But that has become real because he did do it just for me. Because there is enough in here that warranted a death. And he died. So that I could be forgiven and respond to him in love and worship. Some of you here can probably relate to my story more than you could to Carol's because maybe that's your story too or something similar. We do not all initially respond to the love of God in the same way. I take great comfort in knowing that I'm not alone in this, not because some of you probably can relate, but the Apostle Paul himself went through, you know, I identify with his journey because I don't know if you... um, Remember this, but Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Pharisee. In fact, in his own words, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He took it to the next level. He was a ninja Pharisee, all right? He is as good as you could possibly get. Nobody was going to outdo him. That was his attitude. 
He was a fanatical lawkeeper, a man completely full of himself, trained at the best schools by the best scholars, profoundly knowledgeable, highly intelligent, uh, greatly devout. That was the Paul who met Christ on the road to Damascus. I said Emmaus in the last service, completely brain misfire. On the road to Damascus, he met Jesus and his life was changed. But you know what? It wasn't changed the same way as this woman who came to Jesus' feet and just wept because she had no words. It was a different, it was a different encounter. The zeal that he, he had initially was not founded out of love and appreciation for the forgiveness that he'd found because he was still full of himself. He was still, you know, Mr. Ninja. I can just push. I can do the, my best at this. Now, uh, why would I say that? How do I know? Because we get to see the progression in the letters that he wrote. We get to see the change in his own heart from his letters. His very first, his earliest letter that we have, he may have written others, but the earliest one we have is the letters to the Galatians. And uh, he opens that letter with Paul, an apostle, an apostle not sent from men or by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, right? Right out of the box. He claims the highest office in the church, an apostle. Paul, an apostle, not by anybody else. God put me here. In fact, the whole book of Galatians could be sold up in, summed up in three sentences. I'm an apostle. Here's what I'm saying. Here's what I'm not saying. Goodbye. That's pretty much it, all right? But that was the beginning of his ministry. And he's claiming, and God, God has gotten a hold of his life. But by golly, he's going to make sure it works as hard as he can to make it happen. A few, few years later, we move on. And he, when he writes to his first letter to the Corinthians, he says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 9. He says, I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle. Now, that is a quantum shift from what he was saying when he wrote to the Galatians. There's some heart surgery has taken place, and he is now grown in his understanding of who he is and just what God has forgiven him for. I'm, I am the least of the apostles. He's still an apostle, but I don't really even deserve the title. Move on almost a decade, and we see a further growth in his understanding when he writes to the Ephesians. In, in Ephesians 3.8, he says, I am less than the least of all God's people. His estimation of who he is is going down over time. As he comes to grasp, oh yeah, he wiped the slate clean and there was enough in there that needed forgiving. He's revealing a newfound awareness of the debt and the forgiveness and the price that was paid. And at the very end of his life, as a prisoner in Rome, before he dies, he writes to Timothy, whom he considers to be a son in Christ. And he says to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. I am the worst. He could not. It would have been unthinkable for him to have said that as a young man. But his life, you know, over time, which is what God had to do in my life, is that you want your heart not to grow harder and smaller. You want it to, to expand and, and, and to be softer and more malleable so that we can respond with more love, more worship, because now I get more. 
this is what Christ did for me. And I, I take communion and I, I, I worship on Good Friday and I get it. I see he wiped the slate clean for me. In the end, regardless of whether we come to Christ fully aware at the beginning of just how much he's forgiven us for or whether it takes a lifetime to get there, the message of this story in Luke is the same. Worship is an expression of love. Worship is loving God, and the one who is forgiven much loves much. So we just have to grow in our understanding of what God has forgiven in our hearts and lives. Because he's forgiven it all. It's just my perception. I don't have to love God the way that this nameless woman loves him. I don't have to do that because I'm not her. Tears are not a requirement Love is expressed in a multitude of ways. It can be expressed in silence. I can love God by sitting with him in silence. Silence is often the last proof of a friendship. If you can sit with somebody and not have to be constantly talking, they're a good friend. And so I can sit with God and I don't have to say, say something, say something, quick, quick, honey. No, no, I, I can just sit and I can be at peace in the presence of the one who wiped my slate keen. That can be a, an act of worship. I can worship God uh, through joy, jump up and down exuberance in response to an answered prayer or a, an event or a circumstance, and you say, God, you know, thank you, because you see his hand at work, and my response is love and adoration. It can be expressed in action. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments, Jesus said. That's, those are actions. I can love through action. It can be expressed through the fellowship of suffering, where we pull together and we say, we can get through this. God has not abandoned us. He is in this with us. It can be expressed through community. Love one another as I have loved you, he said. Do, do. I'm expressing love, worship for God, as I love my brothers and my sisters. You see, in the end, worship, loving God, is not a competition, all right? It's not a competition where you can say, well, I love God more than them, but maybe not quite as much as that. You know, the whole comparison thing. I don't have to compare myself to a weeping woman at the feet of Jesus who is so overcome with love and gratitude she can't speak. I don't have to compare myself with that. I don't have to compare myself with the way my wife loved God. All I have to do is love God as fully and completely as I am able to at this moment in time and pray that God will keep expanding that experience because it's, it's not, well, I love, uh, you know, I love God, period, story over. He wants it to grow because, you know, he is an infant God and the, my understanding, my perception of what he has done should be growing as the years tick by that's all God is asking. There are seven Greek words for worship in the New Testament. Five of them are only used once. One of them is used three times. The last one is used 59 times, worship. And its basic meaning is to come toward, to kiss. To kiss the hand, as you would like the old Victorian ladies. Kiss the, to kiss in respect, adoration, honor. To come and kiss the hand. Our worship which flows from the depth of gratitude for the cross, in that we get to kiss the hand of God. We get to express love for him.
And I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. So here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're altogether lovely, altogether worthy, altogether wonderful to me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you love us all the same. Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, harlots, everything in between and beyond in both directions. You love us all the same and you wipe every slate clean for those that come before you and say, God, I can't do this on my own. I need forgiveness and cleansing. I need renewal. I need a new heart. I need a new life. And you have offered me one in your son. You paid the penalty. You paid the price I could never pay. And I claim his death on my behalf. And in that moment, love washes everything away. And we are renewed. But we do not start all in the same place. And whether we can relate to this woman or whether we relate to the Apostle Paul. In the end, what matters is that our love for you grows, that our understanding of the forgiveness, the phenomenal forgiveness that you've offered, that you've paid for on the nail, is ours. Father, as we head into this week, I pray you would... Make us that little bit more conscious that uh, day by day, through silence, through community, through um, obeying your commands, whatever it may be, that we learn to love you, worship you more and more. We pray this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you, third service. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful day. Pastor Luke will be back in the saddle next week. Look forward to hearing from him then.